0: Well, this is Imperfect Action, and I'm Brock Edwards, and today's guest is Chip Conley. Chip, can you introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and what you're about.
1: Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a hospitality disruptor, I guess. I've um, disrupted my my favorite industry, hospitality, twice. First as a boutique hotelier in the mid-1980s, and then uh, six years ago, more than six years ago, joining the three millennial uh, founders of Airbnb. Uh, and uh, in the home sharing space of of the hospitality business, and then most recently, I've created the world's first midlife wisdom school called the Modern Elder Academy.
0: Awesome! You know, a, a lot of people talk about disrupting industries; uh, fewer people have actually done it. And, and so you've you've been able to do it a couple of times. And I, I really want to dig into the you know your Modern Elder Academy. But before we get there, I'd love to find out you know for you. Why disrupt? How disrupt? Um, what what made the difference?
1: Well, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think people disrupt, especially in the hospitality business, for the sake of disruption, because frankly, hospitality is a, <laughs> the, the nature of the industry is to be, you know, very, um, uh, very, we're serving people. We're making people feel good. So disruption sounds like it's something you do in a different industry. Um, but I think that <clears throat> my experience is that as a, a customer, and then also as someone on the outside, I can—I think a lot, a lot of times we can see the missing spots or the miss the blind spot that the industry has. Uh, back in the mid 1980s, as a 26-year-old, 25-year-old, um, I could see that the hotel industry was completely obsessed with predictability, and the big hotel chains uh, didn't understand that there was a growing segment of the consumer base and travelers who were really interested in in an experience, a very localized experience, something that had a design flavor to it, and that's where Boutique Hotels came to be. Uh, And then similarly, when I was in the establishment, I did not see home sharing coming along, but the three founders of Airbnb didn't didn't create home sharing to be disruptive. They just knew that they were having a hard time paying the rent uh, in San Francisco, and they opened up their living room with three air mattresses, so that people who are going, coming to a design conference could stay there and they could make a little bit of money to pay for the rent. And that that got them to thinking, well, is there something bigger than just air mattresses on a living room floor? Uh, so I think disruption is uh, – I also think disruption as a, as a word is a, a relatively recent word because it really describes how technology scales things. As a boutique hotelier, I really wasn't a disruptor. I was an innovator. I think the difference between innovation and disruption – is technology. And um, Airbnb was a disruptor because it could be a global presence uh, found online overnight. Whereas my boutique hotel company, while it did grow to be the second largest in the U.S. boutique hotel company, um, it it, it couldn't grow with the kind of scale that Airbnb could.
0: Now, with the Airbnb guys, now you mentioned that they were essentially solving a problem that they had. Yes. And, you know no cost, no risk, you know, putting out on Craigslist or whatever was available at the time and rent out, you know, a couple air mattresses basically. But for you, you know, 25, 26 years old, there's a huge difference there between just saying, yeah, you know, hotels could be different and actually doing it. I mean, what, what motivated you? What inspired you to make that huge leap there?
1: I was a real estate developer, but albeit a relatively young one. I was focusing on commercial real estate development, but not hotels. Um, but I had enough background in the commercial real estate development business that I thought I could apply that to a segment of that business, which is the hospitality or hotel business. Um, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was a kid, and I sort of saw my opportunity then. Now, That's one thing. But then there's the process of like, how do you get a hotel? How do you buy a hotel? How do you get the money together? And so all of that was not easy. But I did raise money about $1.1 million, which is not a lot of money to buy a hotel, but raised $1.1 million from people I went to college and graduate school with to buy a broken down motel that was a pay by the hour kind of place in San Francisco's Tenderloin, which is a pretty tough neighborhood. And that's how I got started
0: so that that's really actually fascinating to me the the idea that okay i'm going I'm to make this leap i'm going to go into a field that i i don't you know it's it's not not your prime field um it, it's an extension something new don't have a lot of money although 1.1 million was certainly a lot more money in you know the mid 80s than it is now but and then you pick a location that i think most people go yeah that's not really the place for a boutique hotel and so leap of faith what what was it there that made you go yeah this this is the place this is the start
1: I th- you know the the thing about the particular property that spoke to me even though it was a terrible location and it, it was in bankruptcy and it you know had a very seedy customer base in it as a pay by the hour kind of place is I walked into the courtyard where there was a swimming pool and a, landscape courtyard and there was a restaurant that sort of faced out on it it was very classic 1950s place and i immediately looked at it and said what a great place to throw a party and (laughs) that is true i just said this is a great place to throw a party and i didn't really and and i knew a lot at age 25 or 26 at that point about how to throw a party and maybe even how to make money throwing a party which i'd done before um So I used that as the basis to say, "Yeah, I think you could create a hotel company out of out of this, you know, one acre motel um, in the middle of the city where it looked like it would be a great place to throw a pool party." So, um, you know, fortunately, I had enough business experience, and I kept the the initial business small enough, so it gave me three and a half years to really learn the business before I expanded to my second hotel.
0: Okay, so the. The second hotel, you know, you went with different themes with each hotel,
1: correct? Yes, each one had its own name and concept.
0: How, I'm stumbling over a question here, Chip, and that is, you know, it's easy once you do something and you're successful at it to just go replicate it. and But that's that consistency that you were trying to avoid. And so... That feels sounds kind of risky, like, hey, I'm doing good at this, and let me just go do something that's a little bit different. What was the, the connective tissue for you there where you said, even though it's different, it's the same enough I can do it?
1: Well, I, you know, I, the thing that I had going for me is I really saw this as a, <clears throat> almost like an art form. The process of creating a hotel, to me, the, the name, the kind of restaurant, the concept it all sort of felt like I was each time we were doing it, I was directing a group and we were creating a collective art form that <clears throat> was a boutique hotel. And over the course of 24 years as the, uh, the founder and CEO of that company, uh, Joie de Vivre, I, we, I helped create 52 boutique hotels. Um, so the way we created them quite simply was there was a process and it was a It was a process we used over and over again, and it worked really well. Each time we were creating a hotel, we imagined a magazine or sometimes a a hybrid of two magazines that defined the personality of the hotel. So that first hotel, the funky hotel in the tough neighborhood, um, the market we were going to go after, we thought, was musicians, artists, creative types. And so the magazine that defined the personality of the hotel we were going to create was Rolling Stone. We came up with five adjectives that defined Rolling Stone, funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. And everything we did in creating that hotel, from the style of the rooms to the kind of restaurant we created, to the kind of staff we hired or the services we offered, all had to come back to those five adjectives um, or a combination of some subgrouping of them. And... So each time we created a hotel, it was a different magazine, a different personality. But the magic in all this was not that it allowed us to create a different soulful hotel each time, which was true. But the thing that really made it magical was the people who fell in love with the hotel we found were people who didn't fit a demographic. They fit a psychographic. There was a psychographic is what we look what we feel like on the inside. A demographic is what we look like on the outside. Well, the people who fell in love with that first hotel, the Phoenix, which was based upon Rolling Stone magazine, And the five adjectives were funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. Those people who loved that hotel were people who actually thought those five adjectives described them on a good day. So what we found is we were in the business of not being a boutique hotelier, but we were in the business of creating an identity refreshment.
0: So with each hotel having a different identity, did you get customers – did did your customers go just to a specific hotel or did they go to the chain even though – well, not the chain, mm-hmm. but, you know, different, different ones even though it was a totally different experience?
1: Um, they went <clears> – <throat> so the thing that was nice is over time, people said, well, that's weird. This is a boutique hotel chain, but um, each hotel is different. So that's not a great idea because you're going to fall in love with one hotel but not all of them. But the thing is that we as personalities, we have different personalities for different you know, times of our lives and for different purposes. And so if you're going on a bachelor party, you may have five adjectives that are different than if you're going on a business trip. So um, what we found is that people fell in love with the concept of the identity refreshment. And they would try out multiple hotels. But you know, they would also realize <clears throat> that not each hotel, not every one of our hotels was gonna be right for them.
0: What is it about the, the way you do business or the way you lead um, that, that is different from the way others lead?
1: I think that one of the things I've, I've really believed in is the idea of culture. How do you create a culture where people feel like they're bought in and completely connected um, and maybe that their voice matters? Uh, and that they're having an impact. And everybody says that, but the, the question of how do you actually do it is not so simple. Um, and uh, you know, the part of the reason I've written five books is because <clears throat> my process of learning about this has led me to wanting to write about it, which forces me to be a more of an expert about it, which allows me to hopefully be a better ex- uh, executor or leader, sh- leader uh, using those principles. Um, and so... I think one of the things that's different about me is that I, I really appreciate having a team of people and building a, building an organization that is not based upon the CEO as the sort of lone leader, leader, the rugged individualist, but it's really based upon building a team of people who actually feel very invested in what the organization's about and um, have a voice. So it does mean that there's a little more democratic decision-making, which can slow the processes down a little bit. Um, but in the long run, I think it creates a more loyal and, and diverse organization.
0: What, what did you do to get that to the, the outer reaches of your organization? You know, with, with your team, with those around you, with the hotel that you're in that day, that seems easier, but you're not in every property. So how did you get the culture where it's stuck, you know, many levels down below
1: the CEO? Um, we, we studied Southwest Airlines <clears throat> uh, relatively early in our company's history and were really intrigued by how Southwest um, was able to create a low-cost airline that had some of the highest guest satisfaction and had absolutely the highest employee satisfaction. And so in studying them, uh, it helped us to create a whole set of systems uh, that, in essence, democratized culture. Such so the culture was not just run by the CEO or by the HR department. It was something that everybody in the company felt like they had some, you know, some influence over. Um, and that process of uh, of of democratizing culture <clears throat> meant that as we were growing, more and more people uh, in the company were uh, invested in that culture, which allowed us to grow further. Um, and so there were so no. no You know, while the culture was quite different from one hotel to the next on some level, because the hotels were quite different personalities, there was an umbrella culture that sort of defined um, the company, which spoke a lot to our name. Our name, Joie de Vivre, uh, means joy of life. And so our mission was also the name of the company.
0: If someone hadn't read your books, where would you suggest they start? Is there one that just... Is strongest you know, in your I've heart. Written
1: five books, which is such a weird thing for a, an an actually operator slash CEO slash someone who's embedded in, a, in companies. Like uh, I, I like to write early in the morning. Um, I would say the two books that are most you know representative of my point of view um, would be Peak, which is my third book called uh, Peak: How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, <clears throat> as in Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the psychology theory. Um, that's a really great book in terms of understanding an organizational philosophy and uh, point of view that can define how leaders focus on the hierarchy of needs of their employees, their customers, and even their, their investors. And then my most recent book, uh, which came out, uh, last September is called wisdom at work, the making of a modern elder. And that tells my Airbnb story, uh, having joined the company at age 52, twice the age of the average employee, um, never having been in a tech company before, and being the mentor to Brian, the CEO, who in fact I'm having dinner with tonight, um, and um, who ultimately became as much my, my intern. I became his intern as much as his mentor. Because he taught me a lot of things around DQ, digital intelligence. And I taught him a few things around EQ, uh, emotional intelligence. And it was basically a mutual mentorship relationship. And I think the future of business is all going to be about intergenerational collaboration. So, um, yeah. So I think for people who want to understand the future of business, um, that's a great book.
0: Well, Chip, I love the phrase "modern elder." Can you describe that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Um, so, the first of all, let's just re- recognize that. <clears throat> excuse me about my, excuse my scratchy throat. Let's recognize that um, many of us, in fact, most of us, may live ten years longer than our parents, and yet, in a digital society, as we've especially seen in the last ten years, ten to fifteen years power is moving 10 years younger. And there's a bunch of metrics that I outline in my book that show that. Um, So the phenomenon of what's happening in the tech world, which is uh, power moving to younger people faster and faster, is actually now sort of spreading to all kinds of other industries. So if we're going to live 10 years longer, and power is moving 10 years younger, we've created a 20-year irrelevancy gap that didn't used to exist. And so um, what I was starting to wonder about at, at, at while well, I was at Airbnb, whereas I was lucky because the CEO and his co-founders really wanted me here at Airbnb, what I was seeing was a lot of my friends who are in their mid-50s were feeling more and more of ageism and a hard time getting a job, not just in the tech industry, but in all industries. And so that brought me to the question of like, well, what is it that we have to offer? And I think the The traditional elder of the past was sort of the person who dispensed wisdom. But because in the past, change didn't happen all that quickly, especially in agrarian society. So like, you know, you you understand how land works based upon the seasons. And the longer you've been a farmer, that's probably the better farmer you are. Well, when it came to the industrial era, or especially the technological era, that was no longer true. Your, Your age and experience actually worked against you, maybe. And so what, what I started to imagine is that the traditional elder of the past was regarded with reverence. Um, but the, the modern elder is as curious as they are wise, so they're appreciated for their relevance, not their reverence. And the relevance requires that you are as curious <clears throat> about what's happening in the world so you can understand the context in which to, to offer your wisdom. So curiosity opens up the possibility And wisdom distills possibility into, uh, you know, maybe um, distilling it down to what's most important. And it's that combination of curiosity and wisdom that I think defines um, this modern elder. And in a world where uh, power is moving to digital young leaders faster than ever before, many of these young leaders, frankly, don't have the relationship wisdom or experience to be managing companies that are growing as fast as they are. So, you know, trying to match modern elders with young, brilliant uh, leaders is, to me, I think part of the future.
0: Essentially, what does the modern elder have to offer? Because as you were mentioning, you know, a greenery in society, you have a lifetime of experience, but in the modern age, things are changing so fast that some of that experience may not be relevant. So I guess what is the, the core of experience that the modern elder can bring if it's not, you know, how to do technology.
1: Well, Let me use my example. And I think I've seen so many people who have a comparable to this, but I can tell you my story better than I can tell you someone else's. I was brought into Airbnb because this was a small tech company with a design focus, but didn't have anybody in the company with a travel industry or hotel or hospitality background. So, there was the thought that, okay, Chip understands hospitality. We'll just apply that knowledge, those facts that he knows over to us um, at Airbnb. Well, the truth is that my fact knowledge at Airbnb wasn't all that valuable because knowing how many rooms a maid can clean in an eight-hour shift didn't matter much for a home-sharing company. Um, So sometimes that doesn't help. But what I really did understand was three other things. Number one is I understood the industry and how it was organized, and there were all kinds of things like you know like um, acronyms or lingo like rev par, revenue per available room. So there were things that I could translate for this young tech company that related to the industry they were going in, and I see this a lot. For example, in healthcare, where I experienced, longtime healthcare. Professionals are really helpful to young startups that want to figure out how to um, to disrupt, you know, what's a pretty broken healthcare system. And so that know-how of how the industry works can be very helpful. And then the know who of understanding who's in the industry and sometimes being a net, a, 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 you know, a superb networker was very helpful at Airbnb because, quite frankly. <laughs> We had the hotel industry initially ignored us and then they ridiculed us and then they fought us. And so my, part of my role at times was to help build a bridge and to help try to figure out some strategic partnerships that would work not just with hoteliers, but also with destination marketing organizations that market a city or a convention center um, or travel agents and the like. So that know how and know who were important. But I think the biggest thing that a modern elder can really offer is. While our IQ can't grow as we age, our EQ does. And um, one of the things that happens is, you know, and especially in a young tech company, is everybody thinks it's just a tech company. Well, no, it's actually a human company. It's <laughs> we're in the human business because we're full of teams of, of humans. And the process of understanding emotional intelligence and understanding how to be a um, a how a, a leader um of a collection of humans and how to collaborate and how to how to understand motivation and inspiration of 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 employees was particularly valuable in a company like ours at Airbnb because the company is full of teams and so I was able to be very helpful to Brian on that and i think that that's very true of generally of older workers
0: yeah i mean everywhere business you know is done for by and through people. And, and we, I don't think we can avoid that. And so I love that connection there of, of how we do it better. You know, there's a, there's an old expression that it, it goes, you know, if only youth knew, if only age could, you know, on, on your website, you seem to have kind of turned that expression on its side. And, and I love it that the quote you have posted, it's young enough to take up surfing old enough to know what's important mm-hmm. in life.
1: Um, can you say more say to that your, Say your quote again. I want it, I'm writing it down. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an old expression. I don't know where it's from, but it's, if only youth knew, if only age could.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's interesting um, is that we are living longer and we're actually healthier longer. Now this is not true of everybody, but in terms of Western societies, there's a lot of evidence of this. And so, you know, A generation or two ago, if you were 55 years old, you were in the process, especially if you're a a manual laborer and you're in in the industrial uh, part of our our, our economy, you sort of burn yourself out by doing redundant work and also um, doing work that actually has a physical toll on you. That as well as cigarettes and alcohol and a few other things that we frankly didn't know were as bad for you as they were meant that a person who's 55 years old might only have another 10 years of their life. And frankly, at 55, they might be not going out to a gym because frankly, a generation or two ago, gyms were not as prevalent. Um, And they, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the fact is I'm 58 years old and I'm just learned surfing. Most people don't learn surfing at that age, but we're going to see more and more people taking up new things at an older age. And so that means that the person who in the past might have physically been unable or maybe mentally was unprepared or or frankly didn't imagine that they had much life left so they wouldn't actually try something new um, that that's shifting and uh, you know online longevity sites say that I'm going to live till maybe age 98 if that's true then at age 58 I'm actually only halfway through my adult life if I start counting at age 18 so that kind of thinking, that kind of new math, helps those of us who are in midlife and beyond to actually take up Spanish, as I have recently done, um, because you know what? I, if I take it up now, I'm going to have decades ahead of me where I could use it. Whereas if I thought I was going to live and you know only to age sixty-five, I probably wouldn't take that up.
0: Yeah, it's wild to think you know four decades to to go. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it's not that long ago that 58 would have been the, well, let's think about retirement time. So t- tell me about this um, Modern Elder Academy. What, what are you trying to do with that? Or what are you doing with
1: that? Well, uh, so in, in the process of writing the book, um, I Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I came across many, many interviews I did with people in midlife hearing a lot of anxiety and bewilderment. By that irrelevancy gap I mentioned earlier, I'm going to live longer, but I feel irrelevant younger. So I feel I, I, you know, this doesn't make me feel good. Um, You know, longevity is a great thing, uh, having a longer life. But if you can't afford it because you can't keep a job or you can't you know build retirement savings, um, that's a problem. So what it made me start to think about is the fact that as societies we have a tendency to create almost rituals and rites of passage and celebrations when people tend to be going through transitions. We do this at puberty. We do this at adolescence to adulthood. We do it when someone's going to uh, commit themselves to each other a, and have a wedding, when you're going to have a baby, when you die. All of those have some rituals and celebrations that are well known. But because midlife is a relatively new phenomenon in the history of humankind, we haven't really created that. And so, I decided to create this thing, the Modern Elder Academy, where people could come and reimagine their life, repurpose themselves, shift their mindset about what aging means um, and what they have to offer to the world. Uh, And we tried it on a beta basis, beta test basis for six months. It went really well. And then we opened last fall um, to the public on a three-acre campus um, on a beachfront in Mexico an hour north of uh, Cabo San Lucas, which is um, southern Baja. And um, it's a week-long program. It's a social enterprise, so um, uh, 60% of the people who are coming are um, ask for either a full or a half scholarship. Um, Average age is 52. We've had people as young as 30 and as, as old as 78 um and the premise is that people are in midlife is a lot broader than i thought it was i thought it was i thought it was 45 to 65 but it turns out it's actually more broad than that um and people feel like they're going through transitions earlier and later in life uh and uh they're looking for a place where they can learn how to to effectively go through a transition whether that's a divorce or cha- changing a job or empty nest syndrome or anything like that
0: where can people find out more? Uh,
1: well, my website for uh, for chipconley.com is uh, where you can find out more about me and my book. You can find out more about the Modern Elder Academy at modernelderacademy.org, but it's also attached to the Chip Conley website.
0: I you know, what we I think we could go on talking a really long time, Chip, and I know we have some time constraints here, so my, my last question for you uh, and the, this has been amazing. Thank you. Um is how can people help you? How can the listeners help you? What would your ask be of them?
1: I think what I'd love to have people do is to reimagine you know, that uh, aging actually can bring some unexpected pleasures. And uh, the U-curve of happiness uh, has shown us that people actually get happier in their 50s, 60s, and 70s than the prior decade. And, and the societal narrative doesn't suggest that. So I think we need to help get our personal narratives out there in the world a little bit more. Um, love people to buy my book, um, which speaks about this a little bit more wisdom at work or explore our modern elder Academy, which frankly, since it has scholarships programs is available for just about anybody.